Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at empowermissouri.org WOA. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. Sponsored by the Sue and Lynn Schneider Charitable Fund. Hi, everybody. This is Jason Rosenbaum, a political correspondent with St. Louis Public Radio and the host of the Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air. What you're about to hear is my conversation with St. Louis Board of Aldermen President Megan Green. This interview aired on December 22nd on the Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air. And the citywide official talked about the accomplishments that the Board of Aldermen made in 2023 and what she expects the policy agenda to be in 2024. Here's my conversation with President Green. 2023 proved to be a transformative year in the city of St. Louis. And we're not just talking about major legislation or an infusion of cash. The city's Board of Aldermen shrunk from 28 to 14 members, marking the biggest structural change for the powerful legislative branch in generations. April's election solidified a left-leaning coalition's hold on city politics. And while the Board of Aldermen managed to get plenty done to protect tenants' rights and to provide a break for senior homeowners, they still have plenty of legislative work to do in 2024 to solidify public safety, stabilize the city's jail, and potentially reinstate red light cameras. And they have to work with a mayor's office with a similar political philosophy, but often different ideas on how to solve the city's problems. Joining us to talk about what's ahead for city politics is St. Louis Board of Aldermen President Megan Green. Green recently marked her first year in office in a post that has significant influence over the course of legislation and the city's budget. President Green, welcome to the Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air. Thanks so much for having me. How do you think shrinking to 14 members changed how the Board of Aldermen operated? It's really forced us to be a more policy-oriented board. We have now filled the majority of open staff positions that we had at the board to give us greater capacity to do public policy research, engage in stakeholder meetings in ways that we haven't been before, and be able to respond to constituent concerns all at the same time. Uh, I think there's still a little bit of a a transition happening um, in that. There's still kind of a culture change, but um, the board is, is getting right down to it and is diving into policy, I think, in ways that they uh, have not had the capacity to do in the past. One of the policy areas that did not get past the finish line in 2023 was legislation trying to assist the city's homeless population. And some of the provisions, including creating intentional campsites in the city and making it easier for new shelters to open up, you saw it. It received a lot of criticism. Why do you think that bill ran into so much opposition? You know, I think that we were in a place where we were starting the conversation. We have to recognize that the legislative policy process is just that. It's a process. And so anytime you bring a bill that requires a lot of change to the public and to the board, a lot of times 
people need to sit with it for a while. So I think the slate of bills got the city to a place where we were talking about the issue in a substantive way. And the legislative process is designed to create these conversations and recognize that process isn't always linear. Um, so I expect that new versions of these bills will be filed in the new year that take into account both the resident feedback that was received and uh, feedback from older people. How do you think that the bills will be significantly different in 2024 compared to the legislation that was introduced and ultimately shelved in 2023? I mean, we are still working through changes with the Planning Commission. Um, I know that there was a lot of pushback on eliminating the plat and petition process altogether. So it may be that we change that plat and petition process. And, just, and that that is when you have to get a certain amount of signatures uh, in a certain air, a geographic area for a shelter to actually open, correct? Correct. So the plat and petition process as currently uh, required requires 50% of signatures from property owners and registered voters within 500 feet of a proposed location. There's several problems with that. One, uh, many renters are not necessarily registered to vote where uh, they're renting a property. So it it takes a lot of renters out of the equation. Um, It also puts a hyper-local focus on that, that shelter rather than looking at overall city needs uh, and, and what the city needs. And so we're at this place where only um, zero shelters have been able to get through the plat and petition process in the last 15 years. And only 3% or sorry, 13% of special residential units. So these are, you know, halfway houses and um, and other types of, of shelters have been able to get through this process. And so we recognize that as homelessness is increasing, we have to change the process that is inhibiting shelters from opening. Do you see any future legislation being successful at solving the goals you just mentioned without some sort of buy-in from St. Louis County? Because that's been a lingering criticism for a while that the city has to take on this issue by itself and by take on the issue pay for the resources, come up with the policy. What role does St. Louis County have to play here? You know, I think that we need to be breaking down these misnomers that there is not collaboration that is happening between the city and county. The city continuum of care and the county continuum of care, which the city is a part of, uh, works together on uh, an ongoing basis to address these needs uh, uh, regionally. But we recognize that the majority of unhoused folks are in the city. And we can't use um, inaction or not seeing all of the things that we want the county to do um, as an excuse for not acting in the city. We received a number of questions from listeners, including this query from Reddit user Mo Beer. Is there any hope of improving city employee pay slash salary? The board doesn't seem to care about employee retentions in any department, and the raises given were an insult toward employee value. And this person is a city employee, so he he or she is speaking from experience. What's next for city salaries in 2024? The challenge that we have is that the Board of Aldermen does not have unilateral authority to raise city wages. We have to go through the Civil Service Commission. And I know that that's something that uh, the Charter Commission is looking at, because I I think if you were to ask board members if uh, we would support higher raises for city employees or or a better uh, group of benefits, overwhelmingly, we would say yes. And um, 
Um, the challenge is I think our often cumbersome personnel systems do not allow us to move at the speed of private sector in order to be competitive. I think employee pay is at the root of what's going on at the City Justice Center. From what I've heard from other aldermen, the starting salary for corrections workers is just way too low to recruit enough people. Is that what you're hearing as well? I am, yes. And, and we've heard that across the board. And the Board of Aldermen is committed to uh, raising those salaries as high as feasibly possible. Um, we know that Again, it has to go through several stages from union negotiations to the Civil Service Commission before the Board of Aldermen can act. But we are uh, ready and willing to move forward any kind of employee pay bill um, as soon as it goes through those other processes. Speaking of the Justice Center, we recently saw two members of the Oversight Board that oversees that facility uh, resign, saying they don't have enough access to the Justice Center. What can the Board of Aldermen do to provide more oversight for that facility? So uh, just a couple weeks ago, Alderman Rasheen Aldridge passed a bill that provided updates to the Detention Facilities Oversight Board to be much more clear about the type of training that is required. He has also subsequently followed up with another bill to guarantee access to the facilities for at least elected officials, which is a policy that is in place at the state level. Uh, this has been an issue that our public safety committee has been laser focused on this year. I, th I think everybody agrees that 12 deaths in two years is not acceptable. And, uh, and we're committed to figuring out exactly what is going on and what role the Board of Aldermen has to play in both oversight and policy change. Mayor Tashara Jones has said that she will not dismiss Corrections Commissioner Jennifer Clemens Abdullah, despite numerous calls from St. Louis policymakers. What do you think about that? I mean, I, I think that we're at a place where we know that what's happening in the Justice Center is not working. I, I am uh, optimistic given that we are bringing in a new medical contractor. We, I, I think, you know, we're seeing a lot of the issues as a result of uh, poor medical care from what we can see. And so bringing in a different provider and, and also creating a better partnership with the health department where we've also authorized some city staff to go into the jail and, um, and be there to address those medical issues are really good steps to moving us forward. But the Board of Aldermen is going to have to continue to play our oversight role in this process to make sure we're getting the changes um, that are necessary to, to ensure zero deaths. Do you still think that uh, the corrections commissioner should stay in her post? I mean, I think we need changes. And and while I am not sure if that means her removal or bringing in additional folks that maybe have had more experience in a municipal jail, we need to pr be providing better, I think, transparency and oversight in our jail system. Uh, no doubt she is very qualified coming from the, the federal level. Um, but I think we also have to recognize federal jails are, are differently resourced and are dealing with a different population than municipal jails. And we might need to bring in somebody to assist her that is um, more uh, has more experience working specifically with the municipal jail population. We're talking with St. Louis Board of Aldermen President Megan Green about the path ahead for city policymaking in 2024. And getting back to listener questions, Reddit user Stone McCready asks, pedestrians are being killed by drivers at near record levels. What is the plan to make walking and biking safer in St. Louis? So 
The plan is threefold to reduce traffic violence in our city. The first has to be infrastructure improvements. And last year, the board passed a historic ARPA allocation of $40 million to redesign many of our major corridors in this city to make them more uh, safe and more pedestrian and cyclist friendly. The second pieces of the second and third pieces of that have to be uh, enforcement and education. So we know Missouri is one of the only states that does not require driver's education. And so the automated traffic enforcement bill that we have right now uh, in front of the board, First, it helps to provide that enforcement piece, but second, uh, fines and fees that are generated go into a traffic fund that, uh, one, can pay for neighborhood safety improvements on neighborhood streets, and two, to fund a driver's education program through the city. Now, and automated traffic, that is a word that is used to describe red light cameras. And I guess the question that a lot of St. Louis residents, and frankly, people that just drive through St. Louis is, how do you set up a camera system that balances tra traffic safety with the constitutional rights of people who have been accused of running red lights? Because that was the reason that red lights cameras were struck down by the Missouri Supreme Court because of constitutional concerns. Correct. So first, I want to be clear that automated traffic enforcement is not only red light cameras. It can also be speed cameras. It can be uh, cameras associated with running stop signs in, in key areas. So it's not just that, although I know that that's the way that, that most folks are accustomed to hearing. <laughs> appreciate <them>. the clarification, <laughs> but continue. Um, second, I, you know, I think that we've tailored a bill that passes that constitutional muster. Um, what the challenge was previously is you could not tell who was driving the vehicle. And so there was a lawsuit over um, challenging whether somebody could actually be ticketed if you didn't know that that person was the person behind the wheel. So the bill that has been designed would require a camera system that would be able to detail who is driving that vehicle, which most likely would mean that that camera system would have to have some kind of facial recognition. We recognize that that can cause major privacy violations as well. And so that is why, A, there are some protections that are already written into the automated traffic enforcement bill. And then two, uh, Rasheen Aldridge, filed a bill two weeks ago for um, community control uh, over uh, surveillance technology. So it's a it's a bill that will, going forward, uh, require contracts for these types of technologies to come through the Board of Aldermen so that we're able to have public processes around them. The public can weigh in on uh, what type of technology is being proposed, the impacts it could have on civil liberties, and we can weigh that before uh, making a decision over uh, implementing technology. Now, you mentioned where some of this revenue is going to go towards traffic safety and driver's education, but I have to imagine some of it's going to go to pay the vendor that's administering the program, correct? Correct. The The way that the bill is structured, the first line of revenue has to be to pay for the program so that it's essentially paying for itself. Now, there's typically a lot of hesitancy around privatizing aspects of law enforcement or privatizing any sorts of 
city governmental services. But there seems to be less of a reluctance when it comes to automated traffic enforcement because what gets brought up all the time is we don't have enough police to do it. But isn't this, no matter how you describe it, privatizing what should be a public law enforcement duty? I think in this case, we're looking at something that is a um, a, a task that the public, that government does not typically do, and um, or at least do well. And uh, and so I think in the, this um, this process, it would allow us to have a third party vendor that would pay those upfront capital costs for installing the um, the automated traffic enforcement system so that that's not upfront capital costs that the city is having to pay for. And but alongside that, the city establishes regulations over that system. And uh, and so we're not giving away control in that way. We are still continuing with city policies and requiring that whatever vendor we choose has to abide by those city policies. We've gotten a lot of questions about whether city policymakers will start spending the RAM settlement money in 2024. But some city elected officials have advocated holding off on spending much of the money, including Alderwoman Daniela Velasquez of the Sixth Ward. So I actually think we should hold off on spending it, at least for a while. Um, I do think that um, waiting till we've spent all our ARPA money um, is the most logical, practical thing to do and let it accrue the 12 some million dollars a year it's accruing in interest. That is Alderwoman Daniela Velasquez on a recent episode of Politically Speaking. Uh, do you gr- agree with Alderwoman Velasquez? I do agree with the Alderwoman, and I think the majority of members of the Board of Aldermen do as well. We've been going through a pretty uh, in-detail and lengthy community engagement process over the RAM settlement funds. We've been meeting um, through a committee of the whole, which is basically bringing together the entire board of aldermen on a monthly basis to make sure that we are getting good information and data from the public and being able to put that into policy. So for example, after the first of the year, we'll be partnering uh, with a couple of different organizations that will come in and talk to us what a potential municipal endowment could look like. Um, Because that knowing that could drive other decisions that we make about how these funds are spent long term. Second, I think Alderwoman Velasquez raises a really good point as well. We have a timeline on the ARPA funds. They must be committed by the end of 2024. And and by the way, the ARPA funds are the federal stimulus dollars that uh, the city got a couple of years ago. Correct. So those ARPA funds must be committed by the end of 2024, and they must be spent by the end of 2026. And so our first priority is getting all of that money out the door. We have some of it that needs to be reallocated um, because either what it was uh, allocated to in the first place ends up not being feasible or uh, it ran under budget. And so we'll be reallocating those uh, after the, the first of the year. And then after that, we also have capital funds. So when the city has a surplus, like we've had this past year, which was about $72 million, 50% of that goes into reserves, but 50% of that goes into the capital fund. And so we'll be starting the Citizens Advisory Capital Committee again after the first of the year and getting a plan to uh, encumber all of those capital dollars before making decisions on the RAM settlement money. 
We've gotten also questions about public transit in the region, which the Board of Aldermen does not directly control, but they do have a say over it because they cut the check to buy state. Uh, Reddit user FlatjackFruit1361 asks, the number and frequency of bus routes in St. Louis is abysmal. How will the Board of Aldermen collaborate with bi-state development to improve our public transit? I, you know, I think the biggest challenge for public transit at the moment is the same challenge that city government is having. It's it's workforce related. It's wages related. And uh, and so I would love to see some kind of partnership with Bi-State where we're looking at what ancillary benefits could we give to all public workers, whether it's free child care or, um, or, you know, health savings accounts or, or things like that that can... Um, support wages, even in addition to the increases in paychecks that that folks are seeing so that we can recruit the the workforce that we need to be able to ensure that we can uh, run all of the bus routes that we need to run. Is there anything the Board of Aldermen can do to provide like ancillary money to provide for more bus routes? Or is that just really going to be a bi-state responsibility? It's really going to be a bi-state responsibility. But what I would be interested in looking at at is is there some way to do cost sharing uh, across governmental agencies that could perhaps decrease costs for something like uh, you know a child care benefit or other health care or elder care benefits that could help uh, recruit the workforce that we need. What do you think like an ideal public transit system in St. Louis looks like to you? You know I think it looks like a, a combination of MetroLink and bus rapid transit. We know we have several north south links um, in addition to the the metro link that is being proposed along uh, Jefferson that are high frequency bus routes I mean personally before I was president of the board I represented Tower Grove South um, which runs along Grand and Grand is the highest trafficked bus route in the city of St. Louis I've heard for years from constituents that they would love to see some kind of bus rapid transit or, or similar system that would um, that would allow for buses to be to have a bus only lane and be running you know in a, a 10 or 15 minute frequency. Back in 2017, city voters approved a sales tax increase that was marketed as a way to expand Metrolink's light rail service. If the city is not successful at pulling down federal funds for that endeavor, which you alluded to with the North-South Metrolink uh, pr- proposal, is it time to redirect those funds? Because that money has been accumulating for a long time. You could argue that if you're not going to spend it on Metrolink expansion, you probably should spend it on something else. Well, the challenge that we have is in order to access federal funding, you have to have a match, right? You have to have that local match. And so we've had to accumulate those funds over time to be able to have the revenue that we need to provide for that match. We are now at that place where we have the revenue for that match. And we are hoping uh, before the end of 2024 that there is a grant application that's submitted to the federal government, which will allow us to move forward with Metrolink expansion. Friend of the show, Harriest Truman, love that name, by the way, asks, can the city of St. Louis implement a vacancy tax for commercial property? Vacant commercial properties are not generating revenue for the city and often cause other problems that require additional city tax dollars to remedy. That That's, a, that's the first time I've heard of that idea. I'm not sure if that idea has entered your radar, but what do you think of 
It, what do you think of that proposal? I mean, I do think that we need to assess vacancy differently. Whether that is a, a tax or a fee, I'm not exactly sure. We are capped by the city charter at the moment at, at $500 per six months for a vacant property. But I think that's something that the Charter Commission needs to, to review. Because a lot of these properties that we're seeing, commercial properties in particular, are owned by out-of-state speculators. And we need to be figuring out the tools that we have locally to be able to, uh, you know, put their feet to the fire and either redevelop these properties or sell them to somebody who actually will redevelop them. In the last minute that we have together, you have mentioned that you thought that 2023 was the year of the tenant and you want to make 2024 the year of the worker. What do you mean by that? And what sort of legislative policies do you want to fill that aspirational ideal with, with actual substance? So for the, the year of the tenant, we've already done right to council. We introduced the rental registry. We uh, introduced an impacted tenants fund. And when we get back uh, in January, there will be a series of bills that make up a tenant bill of rights that will get filed. And we seek to get all of those across the finish line by the end of the 2023-2024 legislative session. And 2024, uh, you know, I think we have to be looking at ways that we can better support uh, workers in the city of St. Louis. We, uh, we know that nationally, People are, are fighting for union rights. They're fighting for higher wages. They're, um, you know, one of the things that I think we would like to see is some kind of labor neutrality agreement that uh, would require if folks are coming after city incentives that they are uh, being clear that they are going to stay neutral if their workers choose to, to unionize. So we see that playing out right now in, in the HUDS committee with the tension between a developer looking to uh, build a hotel with the board of aldermen who's uh, been listening to, to Unite Here who's saying, hey, you know, we really need on the front end some assurances that we're not going to be blocked from unionization if the workers there choose to want to unionize. Megan Green is the president of the St. Louis Board of Aldermen. President Green, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. If you want to listen to the rest of the Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air, go to stlpr.org or wherever you find your St. Louis on the Air podcast. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Thank you for listening. I'm Jason Rosenbaum. This segment was produced by Jason Rosenbaum and engineered by Aaron Dorr. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio.